What's going on, guys? And welcome back to this week's episode of the Let's Just Talk podcast. I hope you're having a fantastic day. And as always, like, subscribe, hit all those things that you can. Make sure you share it out. But uh, this week, here's a familiar guest. And as you hear this, this will obviously be a week later, but I've literally just got off a conversation with last week's guests, as you will hear it, um, it was two hours long. And I was just sharing with him, as we said on that podcast, of um, I feel like I've just had um, a couple of revelations on that podcast and I've just had this <sighs> type moment. And yet I always know when I have conversations with this man and anyone who's heard our podcast in the past will know that he has opened me up like a can of tomatoes in some, uh, in some forms, in some ways that I've cried, I've laughed, I've shared and whatnot. And so... I had to go and step away for 15 minutes just to try and get myself back into a mindset of uh, having what I have no idea where this conversation will head to. But that all said, Patrick, welcome back as I think a third, maybe even four times. Four, four yes. I think, yeah. Four time guest repeat. Although the guest before you has now been on six times. So you've, uh, you're just falling behind him now. But uh, <laughs> that all said, thank you for joining again, mate. And I appreciate the conversation we'll no doubt have over the next however long it might be. Good. Well, thank you for having me back. I must say this time I'm feeling particularly nervous, nervous about the conversation. I've never been nervous before, but this one I, I have. You know, I think uh, I think you're going to try and open me up like the proverbial can of tomatoes. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. I mean, I I mean, we we haven't had one for a while now. Um, we we tend to have one on a semi regular uh, basis that uh, we chat. But obviously, I was back in Melbourne. Um, Again, as this airs, wherever it kind of is, I was back in Melbourne uh, a little while back and um, I happened to knock on your front door as I was coming through and luckily you were home because the last couple of times I've been back to Melbourne, you weren't. And I always do love coming across uh, you guys and your lovely wife and family and having a catch up and chat. And um, this time you were. And so it was great to sit down and just just chew the fat for a little while while I had a bit of spare time. And um, as I said, I shared with you off air, I wish I'd hit record on that because I think that was a good chat. But that said... I do want to kind of bring us back to that conversation a bit because I think the trip and again, I don't know what I'll call this podcast, but it was something be along the lines of the Camino trail changed Patrick's life or, you know, whatever, something along those, because um, I think many people have heard of or know about the Camino trail in some way, shape or form. But for those who don't, um, if you want to kind of give a little bit of a, a background to kind of what it is and what most people kind of, do when they go on that trail and then I guess we'll just kind of see where the conversation goes there to how it had a fundamental shift and change on your life and I'll open well, that can of tomatoes <laughs> um the Camino is essentially whatever you want it to be and uh so there are there are a number of Caminos and and, and, and basically they are uh, a pilgrimage that takes Europe many parts across Spain and head towards um Santiago um, which is the cathedral city. And uh, the idea behind the pilgrimage is that you would get your indulgences, which would enable you in the past to get a fast entry into heaven. And uh, so that still exists. You still go, you still get your indulgence. Your thing's called a compostera. And, um, but you can really sort of start from, from anywhere you choose. There are a number of sort of recognised routes and my route that I did is the route of St James or the route Francis which is uh, from France uh, going up over the Pyrenees and then across Spain uh, ending up in, in Santiago 
and um, that is all of 790 kilometers um, achieved over, in my case, about a 31 day walk. Um, you don't have to do that. Uh, to get your certificate, you should at least do the last 100 kilometers. And uh, that seems to be, judging by the number of luxury coaches that were dropping people off at the 100 kilometer point, that seems to be a very popular way to, to do it. Um, but you can do it either, um, I suppose, as a true pilgrim, which is sort of almost requesting arms in each of the villages you come across. So each of the villages uh, tends to have a municipal hostel uh, run by the local authority, which charges five to seven euros, I guess, uh, sometimes providing a meal, sometimes not. And uh, that is communal dormitory style accommodation in bunk beds. Or uh, you can do the sort of slightly more upmarket, actually there's any level you want to do it, but you can sort of stay at guest houses along the way and have ensuite bathrooms and have your luggage carried forward to your next spot each day. Uh, essentially, the difference between the two, I guess, is the price. Um, there is also that second sort of more upmarket version. You would need to um, plan your route ahead. You need to know where you were staying every night. Um, the way which uh, I did it, although I did stay in some private hostels um, sometimes, the way which I did it is you just sort of see how far you feel like going each day. And then when you come across a uh, a town or a village to stay you just uh, um, find the hostel and you put down um, make up your bed and you um, you uh, get going uh, the other difference is, is in these hostels is that uh, you're sleeping in rooms bunk rooms with maybe 12 to 16 people and you learn about snoring and just what proportion of the population actually ends up snoring excuse me i, I think i've <clears throat> i've just coughed through half of that and so <clears throat> i apologize for anyone who had to hear that and then i had to hit mute on the mic a few times to just stop it because i had a massive coughing fit that just came through but <clears throat> i think well, they came I can, to mind i can i can see you you see they don't know that i can yeah, see I <laughs> so i saw that was happening so i had to actually sort of waffle on to try and <laughs> I could get a sense that you were doing that to kind of help me out. But um, <clears throat> what came to mind when you kind of started saying the, I guess, in quote, different levels that you can do that talk? Because when we went and did, um, my dad and I, <clears throat> excuse me, when my dad and I went and did um, the Everest trip, I primarily did the way that we did it because of my fear for flying. And I didn't want to fly into the mountain where most people do into Lukla. <clears throat> airport and then people then walk up from there and whether they're doing base camp or going the whole way up however they kind of do it Lukla airport is the one that sits on the mountain where most people come in but <clears throat> we walked the entire way into there which added an extra 16 days or something to the trip um but i did that because of fear of flying into a mountain i thought i could, if i'm going to catch one plane it's going to be off that mountain back to Kathmandu. and so when we circled back around i thought that's where I'll do it. But <clears throat> there was a sense of when I got to Lukla Airport that when I saw everyone landing and on the planes, I'm like, you're doing it the easy way. We've just trekked 
for 14 days and then you obviously go up and then you hear stories of people who then want to do Everest and they don't even go to base camp now. Like you can get helicopters that will fly you into camp too and you basically got a Sherpa that puts you on their back and carries you up and then you've got people carrying your, your gear and they kind of almost just walk you to the top and it's become this tourist thing and again my two worlds that kind of go that this country relies heavily on that tourist trade to kind of do that but it's also the thing that's destroying the country because of the amount of people that are coming through and the treks are now becoming so populated that it's kind of taking away from this mystery and mysterious nature that you know this pilgrimage for lack of a better word I say all of that to ask the question was there a sense of those people that you did see being trucked in on these lovely coaches with the final hundred kilometers of like you, you people that are just coming in and just doing the last bit and getting the same situation. Like you haven't really done like, was there a sense of that or not really? Like how does it kind of come across on the trail? No, I think, well, that's in a lot of ways, quite a loaded sort of question because um, on looking at planning the walk, Starting in Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port seemed like to me I was doing the real Camino and because it's sort of in the books, it's stage one, if you like. And then there is the huge 19 and a half kilometre walk straight up to the top of the Pyrenees in the first day. And that's called the Route Napoleon. And I sort of felt like that was sort of really doing the, 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 the real thing. By the time I got towards the end of that 100 kilometer point, I realized that everybody along the way is doing their own Camino. And they're rich, there's poor, there's old, there's young, there's <clears throat> firm and infirm. Beautiful lady from Wales with one leg, who did the whole lot. And, um, I think it doesn't matter at all by the end. It doesn't matter. You do, you do what you want to do and you will take out of it what you want to take out of it. And so there was no, um, there was no envy or, uh, there was no any, um, resentment at all of, uh, of those people. I think it was just beautiful that people just go do it you know 100 kilometers is still a long walk in four or five days or whatever so it was very it was very uh very special in that way i think the other thing which i was just going to pick up on from something which you sort of said about your walk into everest is um that for many of those villages and towns along the way they uh this is what they do and they support they're on the camino trail it's been there for a thousand years, they or more than a thousand years, they support the pilgrims. Some of those communities, very rural communities, have been doing it very hard. And if it wasn't for the pilgrims coming through, they would probably not survive at all. Mm. But so saying, you realize that you are not on holiday, you're not a tourist, you are part of this extraordinary migration that takes place every day of the year. Um, and you are respected and honored by the people in the villages you go through. Um, school kids sort of stop, wave at you and, and sort of call out, you know, greetings to you. And, and 
the cafes and the bars sort of put on very special set menus with very low price meals for you. Um, so it really is, it's what you, it's what, it's, you know, there's a saying, you know, it's, it's about what you bring to the Camino and that's very true. You can, um, you bring yourself to it and, 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 and different people take out different things from it. To that point, I can remember um, dad and I always kind of saying that we'd like to do Everest one day. And as I said, the only thing that stopped us doing it earlier was the fact that I didn't want to fly um, in. And so he was trying to always find a way to kind of do it and obviously found the the trekking company we went with. And so I've shared this before and that not that I don't have a, a good relationship with my father, but it's never been one that I would call him up and say, Hey dad, you want to go for a beer? Like, it's just not something that I ever did. I'm happy to spend my time by myself. He's my father. That's who he is and kind of whatnot. But it was interesting going into that trip that this was probably the first time that we were doing something genuinely together. And so I kind of remember going into that and say, okay, I'm going to really just open myself to the experience and, you know, enjoy this time that I'll have with my father. I don't know what's going to come of it, what I'll see, what I'll experience and how it will kind of eventually end up and kind of whether it will change me for my life and how I see him and what I'll do. But let's just kind of go, go with the flow um, with that. And I'm happy to share with kind of how that went. But my question that kind of comes to mind is, did you have a preconceived idea of what you thought you'd get out of that trip going into it to kind of then how it eventuated? And were they even close to kind of what you thought to what it was in the end or that they weren't even um, on the same page? Yeah, no, I had a very strong preconceived idea. And I think, you know, our last podcast was sort of just shortly before I left for it. And what eventually came about uh, was just a very, very, very different experience. I think for me, I went into it looking mainly at the physical aspect of it. You know, I like the idea, the challenge of, you know, like the, the tough mother of, of hiking, you know, that I was going to go off and spend 30, 31 days hiking. And I'd look forward to challenging and testing myself from a physical point of view to see how well I would do that. And uh, um, as I know you're alluding to, I found out so many other things uh, about my life, myself and my life that um, um, have been um yeah just really powerful about how i intend to sort of move forward with life from from now on and 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 as much as you want to share obviously what what is that to a degree and and, and i ask that with no preconceived idea of you know obviously past conversations we've had from that in that i i remember again coming back from the trip with Everest and we had a moment where we thought dad was going to die. And so that was kind of um, a very life changing moment to be in a situation where is he actually going to make it through the night and having to be rushed off the, off the mountain and only 12 hours prior to that, watching him climb uh, the, the last kind of um, glacier that heads up to the last stay that you have before um, summiting to, um, Everest base camp the next day, watching him go through an extraordinarily difficult time because his lungs were falling apart and he was trudging through. And I remember saying, do we turn back here? And him having that moment of, no, you know, we came to do this together. We're going to do this together, come hell or high water kind of thing. And so I remember having that kind of moment in my life and kind of 
really looking at my father in a different way at that moment and saying, I am so proud to call myself a Martin and I'm so proud to have him as a father and the work ethic he's instilled in me in, in my life just comes in this one moment um, that I'm now kind of having with him. And so I was kind of like, you know, that changed me and kind of that relationship I had with him, but also kind of how I then looked on life and kind of how I then want to be perceived as a father in that it's not about the work ethic I put in at work and what I create as a life for my girls, but it's, I want them to have this view of me of this figure that is there for them, no matter what. And I certainly got that from him. And obviously you didn't walk the Camino trail with your father, but like, did you have that, like, I don't even want to say godly moment, but was there kind of a moment or were there many moments that you kind of had throughout that trip that like has now fundamentally given you this view on life that you're now going to take forward? Look, I think I'm very tempted to turn the table on you and start opening up tomato tins with you because, you know, you have, you know, we share, we've shared a lot over the last, what would it be, sort of 15 years yeah i mean I, yeah. i've always shared rachel was my very very first client and that was back yeah. in 2006 and so right. um however long that is when you then came into the scene after yeah. um, i started yeah. working with her so yeah, yeah it'd be at least years. at least yeah 14 14 years or so yeah so um and you've shared a lot you shared a lot about your father i met your father um and you've shared a lot about yourself and your life and family now, and I think that would make a very good. Uh, you're you're happy to open up those tomatoes, <laughs> no, I'm more than I'm an should, open book, so maybe feel free. We make maybe. Well, I'm, I would love to, but maybe just I should answer your question. Um, there are a lot of individual moments, uh, an enormous number of individual moments about the people who I met, um, the places that I came across, but. Uh, they all became one. They all come down to the same thing. Um, there is I think that you start off walking something like that with a lot of things in your head, a lot of things that you want to do, achieve and find out, a lot of things that you left at home, a lot of things that have been unsaid, a lot of uncertainty about perhaps where your life is going to and what comes next. And it was almost as though day by day I started to sort of shed those things and and not consciously, but I just sort of found myself being just more open to um, other people who I encountered and there were a lot of people there who did have big stories. They were there for a reason. I, I would say, and this, this is amongst, because this is amongst the, the hostile dwellers, they fall into two categories. They are either young or they're old. And the young are um, at some inflection point in their life. They've had their first job. They didn't like it. They're looking at what they should do next. Or the old are... Um, just sort of starting a retirement or in a lot of cases, starting a, a bereavement. And uh, lots of people who just lost, largely women who just lost uh, a partner and they've nursed for many years. 
And I think this is the thing which I learned about myself, and it was, I'm not going to take credit for this. I read an article in the New York Times some time back, um, and it was actually written, um, oh, it was the, the person writing it said that they got it, they asked this idea from a kindergarten teacher, but it was essentially that um, when somebody comes to you, um, there are three questions that you ask. One is, is do you need to be heard, helped, or hugged? And I think um, that's what, um, that was in a sense my big sort of lesson, not to, we far too quickly when we are with people telling their story, we interject with our own story. Yeah, I did that, you know, mine was bigger or mine was, or you must try this, or I had somebody with the same illness and they're fine now. And I think that um, as I sort of started to sort of do that sort of shedding of my own sort of concerns, I found myself in a better position to listen to other people. Um, and um, they don't want, they, they don't want your advice. They don't want your sympathy sometimes. They just want to know that you're there and they can tell their story and somehow or other, particularly the people who are bereaved, it just helps in, in some way to sort of hold on to that loved one for a little bit longer by sort of telling you about about them and their life. And so I think, um, you know, that was sort of something, as I said, that sort of started to to emerge and became important. And um, there were a lot of hugs um, along the way. Um, but what I think happened for me was that by the end of it, I started to realise that I wanted to have less cluster in my life. I wanted to have less concerns and anxieties in my life. And um, I think we've spoken before about um, how the book Sapiens, um, I've, I've never read sort of pop philosophy books in, in my life, but Sapiens takes you to a wonderful conclusion and spoiler alert, but um, that the idea of that we're seeking happiness, we seek happiness through self-actualization, but in fact, actualization is achieved by the absence of desire. It's not by what we have and what we acquire, it's about desiring less. And I think having sort of lived for those 31 days where all I had to do each day was put one foot in front of the other and find a bed and find a food, um, I, had, I desired nothing else at all, nothing at all. Um, in a way, I didn't even desire the company of other people. Um, it was just beautiful when it happened. Um, you walk at a pace and sometimes somebody speeds up their pace to join you or you're passing somebody and they um, you slow down your pace to join them. And then you just engage in these wonderful conversations which either last an hour or last a day or in the case of three people I've met will probably last a lifetime. And we, you might've heard my computer going bing. That was... Um, a friend in another part of the world who I met on the Camino, they're just waking up in Europe now and just checking in and talking about their day. And uh, I think that was for me the biggest lesson was um, just try not to um, try not to want more, bigger, do more with what what I have now. 
and uh, make more more of that. Two thoughts that come to mind. One, the quote or kind of comment you made um, that people just want to be heard, helped or hugged in that there's this beautiful TikTok page or Instagram page, whatever it was in there. The guy basically puts on a blindfold and he stands in the, the middle of an intersect, not in the middle of a road, but like of an intersection of a crossway of people walking um, with his blindfold on and just has a sign at his feet or somewhere like that, free hugs. And it's not a, it's not a, um, it's not a revolutionary thing. People have been doing that forever and saying free hugs and, you know, that whole movement kind of thing. But there's something that's beautiful about that because he blindfolds himself and there's so many others that have done it and they're running around saying, can I give free hugs? Can I give free hugs? And he just stands there and waits. He doesn't go after people. He doesn't go, hey, can I give you a free? He waits for someone to come to them. And then obviously he records it and you hear the conversations that tend to transpire between those people in that so many people just don't feel heard these days or that they feel like they're, they're alone, that no one cares, that there's no one there for them. And the amount of, this is going to, I don't mean to use this terminology here, but it's, it's quite crass, but the amount of verbal diarrhea that comes out of these people um, in a positive way, and that's why I wanted to make sure I said that in a positive way, even though verbal diarrhea sounds quite negative, but this very positive way that this person stays blindfolded the whole time and they just stand there with their arms open and then some random person comes in and goes, I needed this hug today. And then that person then starts that conversation. Why did you need that hug today? And then it can be as simple as a question of that. And then this person just goes and just unloads for the next, however long that interaction might be. Obviously they only do snippets for our you know, consumerism world as we're scrolling on um, TikTok and things like that. But it's, it's, it's incredible just how little people do feel that they are heard in this world. And I, I think it's, I, I've never heard that question that you pose that and I think that will fundamentally make me a better coach because I think I've far too often done that as well in that someone comes to me say Adam I have a problem fix me and then I'm like you know that reminds me of a time where I've and trying to relate on a human level with them via a story that happened to me rather than just asking why do you need help or what can I do to help instead of, as you said, quickly going into, let me tell you about me because it's all about me yeah. kind of thing. And as soon as you said that, I had this kind of, ugh, I never stop talking about myself even, <laughs> but I do, I, I do it in the best kind of, with the best intentions that I'm trying to help you because you've asked me for that, that help. But I do it by talking about myself so often. I don't say all the time, but very often. And so I think that's a beautiful question that, can be asked and I've, you may have seen me typing before because I think I'm going to put that into an email and try and formalize my thoughts in a, in a way in an email. But just, yeah, people just need to be heard, helped or hugged. I think is a beautiful thing to say. And just, yeah, I can imagine that would come up quite a bit on, on a trail like that when you are just out on your own. But the thing that happened to me is I'm actually not very good at sharing and I'm, I can share at a level, you know, I can, I can take you down to the ground floor of my sort of feelings, but I, I won't take you into the basement of my feelings. I won't go. I won't go lower, and 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 um, I will. I'll never talk about what scares me, and um, and I I found that after a while, it was maybe three three weeks or more, and I came across. When I say you came across, what you do is you sort of meet somebody one day, and then they go on ahead, and and 
with you going ahead and then you just happen to three or four days later sort of meet them sitting outside a bar or whatever it is and you walk the time and so there's that sort of interchange but I met somebody about three weeks down the line that I met sort of quite earlier on and um, I found myself opening up to this person in a way that probably I'd never really opened up to anybody before and uh, so in a way I suppose they were practicing the uh, herd helped hugged in, in a sense really but at the same time I think that I was um, I sort of de-scrambled the wiring a bit in my head through that process and found it just easier to sort of articulate my thoughts in a way that uh, somebody else could sort of understand and and um, and help me understand better. Um, so it was it was a it was very much a, a, a two way process. You know, initially, as I say, sort of coming across people, then um, I just sort of found, particularly with with this one person, just very very easy to open up to them. And yeah, there another person, I'm another one that I'm still talking to. You know, every day. Yeah. Have you found that's now turned on a light switch where now? you're happy to kind of go to the basement level with anyone you come across now, or is it that just happened to be at a particular particular point in time, the sun was shining the right way and you met this person that had this particular aura, like, is it just that person that had that particular moment in time? Or are you, are you feeling that you can do more of that with more people in your life that you had maybe previously done? No, I think what it, 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 in a sense, yes and no, but it, what it's done is no, I don't go into the basement. But what I've done is realizing, I think I realized that I spent far too much of my time in the basement. And I think I was becoming um, a bit of a misanthrope. I was sort of withdrawing from um, a lot of, uh, just a lot of the sort of social conventions of life. You know, as you know, we I think we spoke about it before, you know, I've been through this sort of big change where I've sort of transitioned from being sort of marketing and banking into the social work world sort of world. And I found that I'd probably when we were last talking, I probably articulated a bit of it, but I found that very tough. You know, I'm I'm I am i am not um, you know, I'm a white middle class male and I have conversations now with non-white female sex workers victims of domestic abuse living in their cars and i was never equipped i've never had that experience i've never met those people and i've had to go through a journey of learning stand and learning to be uh empathetic and and working out where I can help and support them in that and then I have learned that we live in a very difficult world with a lot of inequality and a lot of people facing real challenges in their life and when I try and bring that into my everyday life I get a number of very different but sort of unexpected responses a lot of people don't want to know um a lot of people say oh yes that's terrible but you know what i hear so often from my circle of friends is but they've got choices they made choices and um i think what i'm 
understand is that um, a lot of people just don't have choices. Choices are denied to them at birth. Um, and so for a time, that has made me not want to engage with those people. That's that's made me sort of withdraw because I don't know how to, I don't want to have facile conversations with people. And I also don't want to sort of prophesize and, and sort of try and, and berate people for feeling that way. Um, I never quite found my, my narrative. And I suppose what I did was come out of, you know, it was only finished last November and um, realizing that, as I say, I can't live in the basement for the rest of my life. So what I've done is try to be more embracing and try not to, in a sense, sort of worry about what other people sort of um, might sort of think. You know, every now and then you do find somebody who is interested and you can have a, a conversation with. You know, I think particularly at the moment uh, here in Australia and probably many parts of the world, possibly one of the biggest issues sort of facing people is accommodation, lack of accommodation and skyrocketing rents at the moment and the impact that's having upon people's lives. And I think that is something which I can, people find easy to understand because they can relate it back to their own sort of existence and their own sort of mortgage and, and so on. So that's a long answer, but um, no, I don't share more, but what I am doing is embracing or trying to embrace life a little bit more, making more effort to go out and, and meet people and to be with people, be with friends, more time to live. I've just come back from doing the three capes in Tasmania, um, four day walk there and um, really leaned into the conversations with the people uh, on the walk. And um, I think I am a much happier person because of it. Is there a commonality though between all of us since at the end of the day, we're all humans. And what I mean by asking that is that I can only imagine the breadth of people that you have spoken to your, to in your life, be that in your marketing and banking world, be them clients or work colleagues, to people you've met on the Camino Trail, to people in your local neighbourhood and school um, circle of people that obviously you've grown up with, um, with your kids going through school, to now working in the social world. And as you said, um, you know, a, a, a demographic of people you've probably spent very little time with in the past, but are now spending more time with you made the comment before and obviously said that quote, you know, people just want to be heard, hugged and, um, or helped. Is there that same kind of sense, no matter how down, how low or how disadvantaged or whatnot someone might be, if you compare them to someone who would be perceived on the outside world as a, gee, they must be doing really well. They've got the big house. They got da, da, da. But when you open up that can of tomatoes, there's still a scared little boy, scared little girl who wants the approval of their peers and their parents. You know, when you kind of break the human down kind of to the fundamentals, is that same kind of level of want in life, maybe it's on a different scale, but is that same want from that person that you're now talking to in a social care type setting, very similar or vastly different to the person that you might have met at a network meeting for a Fortune 500 company when you were doing a marketing job those years ago? Um, you know, I could sort of argue that, that, that it's just relative to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, in that 
you know, the people I'm dealing with are looking for their sort of, you know, basic security, you know, sort of, you know, you know, food, shelter, sort of type of of needs. But I think um, I thought where you were going to go is the idea that if you look too deeply into the abyss, um, then you know it might it might suck you in, and so people are aware of that it is that it is there. People are aware that these these situations, awful situations, exist, but that reinforces their purpose to do everything to move forward in a way that avoids that ever happening to them. Does that, does that make sense? That we are. Yeah. To, I mean, if I kind of can parry on that comment, my fear that if we're going to talk about fears in, in, in some way, shape, or I, my fear of losing it all and becoming homeless or kind of having that kind of, you know, happen to my family in one shape, it's probably hard for me to conceptualize because I, I know deep in my heart, and I always use this as a kind of analogy to, um, like the story of Buddha, and I I don't know it enough to kind of really be a, you know, someone who has a voice to actually speak on this. But like the whole story of Buddha was, he was a very wealthy kid that said, you know what, I don't want this wealth anymore. I'm going to go and live in the world, and kind of I'm going to treat the like the poor and the needy, and I'm going to go out there and do all this kindness. But he had this overriding sense that, well, if it doesn't work out, I can always go back to the royal family kind of thing. And and I, I kind of feel that kind of sense with myself in that I don't have that real deep burning fear because if it all turns to shit, I know I could turn up on my parents' doorstep or we could turn up on Amy's and we'd have a home over our heads. Like it wouldn't be the end of the world kind of thing. And so I don't, I can't, I can't quite put myself in that situation of someone who, genuinely knows that I'm one paycheck away from being homeless or I'm one, you know, one bad decision away from this just being a complete clusterfuck for me. And so my leading of that whole question really was that is there kind of still that overriding sense of you're a human at heart though. And so we still have the same fears that just, they might be slightly skewed in different ways. That's kind of where I was kind of going with that conversation. I, I now don't really know where I'm going with the conversation, but kind of just thoughts that are kind of pottering around in my head. No, I can see where you're sort of trying to sort of go. Uh, is that is that feeling um, innate within us? Um, and um, I think in a way it is, but we always love, you know, any government wins votes by being tough on law and order, you know, and, and here in Victoria, you know, which I think must be one of the one of the the um, best places in the world to live, you know, we're constantly advertising for new police and and advertising how much the police force is sort of growing and things, and I think you know, that's part of our sort of innate fear that you know round the corner there's this sort of nihilism of people who will have no respect for law and order who will, um, and we have to protect ourselves against that. And look, I you know, I'm not sure if I told you, but the my, my, the biggest sort of epiphany in my life for why I made this change was just I just volunteered to do food deliveries for 
during the lockdown and and came because we were doing contactless deliveries where you would sort of text the person and they would sort of come down and you'd leave the bag outside on the pavement and they came along and picked it up and 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 I came across this woman who by her dress and demeanour looked like she might have been very smart at one stage and she out of everybody would stop and have a conversation with me and tell me their story and what was going on and how they ended up there she didn't and I went there a number of times she never did she never made eye contact or anything and it just struck me that this was somebody who never imagined in the wildest dreams that there would ever be any anybody taking food aid you know there would ever be anybody taking food parcels and you know I think I know it's sort of very crass to sort of say that Ernest Hemingway, it comes from one of his books, you know, the, the quote that, how did you go bankrupt slowly, then suddenly? I think that people get themselves into this situation. It's not one event that, that gets people into this situation. It's, 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 it's a number of events over, over perhaps a, a, a number of years, a long period of time. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, in, in our case, a lot of people end up living in their cars when they become homeless and then the car breaks down or the car gets towed or, you know, and all of a sudden they're now homeless. And um, I don't know whether there is a fear of people. I don't know whether that is, you know, uh, um, I think for me it is. I think it's because I think that I've, I've, I've learned to try and, and treasure what I've got and be happy with what I've got rather than lusting after more try and ensure that what I've got is I appreciate it and I, I treasure it and I, I'm not going to go and um, bet it all on the, uh, the, the 245 race over at um, <laughs> wherever. You know, I, I think it's, it's that. I don't know. I don't know the answer to it. Um, um, you know, nobody, nobody wakes up one day and decides that they're going to be an alcoholic. Nobody wakes up one day and decides that they're going to have an affair. You know, nobody thoughts, but those thoughts can have, you know, those events can lead to, you know, catastrophic circumstances beyond their, ex, you know, their, their expectation and imagination. You know, you know, you look at it, you know, you know, we know here in Australia that sort of the incidence of, 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 um, accidents happening outside school pickup where um, people have had a few glasses of wine at lunchtime and then go and pick the kids up and, and has terrible consequences on everybody's lives. So, yeah. Gosh, this is, is taking a... <laughs> no, but, I mean, that's what I've loved about this podcast and how it's changed um, since the first 200 episodes I did. And I've shared this and I literally just said this on the podcast just before... Um, this one is that um, I've lost a lot of audience members because of it, but um, I'm hoping that the ones that have stuck around have really enjoyed the kind of variety of conversations that have come in the thought provoking moments or the th thought provoking quotes and comments that kind of have been said have, have actually added value to people's lives rather than again, just talking endlessly about fat loss and fitness and health just from a very surface level thing and to kind of take your analogy is that that's that that's kind of just taking it to the first level of kind of thing and the amount of people I would put it in the probably five to six thousand people range that I have worked with over my almost 20 year career 
to kind of parry back on the conversation that I was having with, is there a common theme in anyone that you kind of have worked with, be it in the marketing world and Alteryx um, wealthy or down to the kind of social level, is that there is a very common theme with regards to people who are struggling with their health and wellness in some way, shape or form, whether that be I'm overweight and can't seem to lose that weight to I just want to get fitter and healthier. There is an override or an underwriting kind of commonality between us all. And it's not to say that we all have traumas in our life. And of course, that's not to just glaze over the fact that some people have had really tough lives kind of growing up and some of us haven't had so, but we all have had things that have fundamentally changed us, I think, in our childhood that forms the way we make decisions or how we go about things now. And I lead all of that by saying that there's usually two thoughts of kind of how to take action on that. And you kind of alluded to that, that, you know, some people are just like, they made choices. So just make better choices in life. You know, you can pick up yourself by the bootstraps and just work harder, make better choices, go, go with that because there's other people who have been homeless before and they got themselves out of it. There's that kind of line of thinking of just work harder, do more, make better choices and you can kind of be successful. And the other is I need help here. I need some, some sort of assistance and you know, whatever that kind of social type um, kind of system that's set up. And whether you talk about left and right politics and kind of, they both have opposing views. Oh, if we just help everyone, they'll, they'll all just be, you know, scourges on society trying to drain the, um, you know, funds of all us hardworking people and the taxes. And then the flip side go, well, you can't just tell people to work harder. Like these people are struggling, they need help. And so again, I bring that kind of full circle to kind of ask the question is like, what's the way we move forward then, Patrick, in kind of, you know, we're talking about kind of people in difficult situations or only a, a decision away from having two glasses of wine and fundamentally changing their life because they run over a child at school. You know, those kinds of things do happen. They're happening all the time and people are having difficulty living the life that they're living now. So do you see a way forward that is going to help every situation, no matter the homeless kind of just trying to get out of just where's my next meal and where's the roof over my head to someone living at home with two kids and have the perfect life and kind of, but underneath it all, it's like, I'm shit scared that tomorrow I make a bad decision and it all goes away. <laughs> 